always, it's wonderful to rejoice and praise God with my brothers and sisters, as it's one voice that goes up to heaven. Amen. God hears it as one voice. He hears it as a voice of solidarity and worship and praise to him. And we're the recipients of an inner grace, those intangibles of heaven that touch our heart when we're worshiping. This is when we're preaching or we're doing our personal devotions and studies to God. This truly glorifies God and worship pleases our Father. I need to remind all of us, including myself, our worship was sweet to God because what Christ has done for us. As wonderful and as freeing, as liberating and encouraging it is when we live the holy Christian life, remember, our worship goes up because of what Christ has done for us. Praise God. We do not deserve to worship God. Christ paid the price for we can worship. We've been speaking about generosity, and I want to continue on speaking on generosity out of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Actually, we're going to do a little bit of reading today in a couple of seconds. But I want to speak about the root and the fruit of generosity, because when it comes to the generous spirit in Christianity, uh, if we're not careful, it could almost seem like it's demanded from us. I'm talking about generosity, financial being, uh, generosity being uh, generous with our finances and blessing uh, the Christian church and blessing our neighbors and blessing people around us, blessing other ministries and so on and so forth. Uh, but where does that come from? What's the root? Can you really get good fruit if you don't know the root? Though it's not mentioned in Paul's list in the book of Galatians, we know that this fruit of the Spirit, we know it's joy, and we know it's peace and goodness and kindness and, and, and gentleness and, and, and humility and self-control and joy and love. We know that, but in our text tonight, we're going to read that actually generosity is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Being open with our resources for the needs of others is, is biblical, and it flows out of our relationship with God. Generosity is that great free, uh, free offering that we give. It's that spontaneous, joyful self-discovery is how I described it last week. And I want to say it again. Generosity is a spontaneous, joyful. And God wants it to be a self-discovery. And that means that you know it for yourself. The joy of giving. As Jesus said, it's what? Better to, to, to receive. When you know that, and you're tapped into that. It is a beautiful expression of God's grace in our heart. You cannot manipulate that. Coerce it. Demand it. Command it. Threaten it. If anybody gives on a, any other impulse but a desire to give, they're given out of the wrong reasons. And as Christians, we want to give. But just as important as what we give or how much we give is why. Are you with me? Yes. It's why we do anything. That's Christianity. Why do we live our life? Why do I choose to make hard choices in my life morally? Because I do it for the Lord. The whole secular world says this is okay. We say no, it's not okay. And our love for God empowers us to do what the rest of the world can't even comprehend we do. They think we're crazy the way we live, how we deal with our finances, how we deal with our time, how we deal with our families, and, and how we deal with truth, and so on and so forth. The world doesn't understand or comprehend what makes us tick. And it is with generosity, too. And as a pastor, I believe what Paul is saying here, to really understand the spontaneous, joyful self-discovery of giving to others out of our resources. 
taking it upon ourselves to be a blessing to other people. God allows his church to notice wonderful grace. So much so that we're going to read tonight, and I spoke about this last week. The example is this church in Macedonia that the Bible says was in extreme poverty. But yet out of extreme poverty, this grace of giving abundantly flowed. So much so that it, it floored the Apostle Paul. He was like, they went above and beyond our expectations. We looked at this church, and Paul's basically saying that they're a poor church. I, I've ministered to poor churches, Paul said. I know poor churches. I've been there. But this poor church gave out an abundance so much. It was beyond our wildest expectations. And that's to let us know with God all things are possible. You don't have to coerce. The Macedonian church, we're going to read a little bit about it tonight, was so incredible in their giving. It's a constant witness to the New Testament believer 2,000 years later of with God, nothing's impossible. And, you know, it's, and I've shared this before, me and John and the elders and, and leadership were Christians many years, and, and I can testify, as Paul says, that honestly, sometimes it's the poorest that truly give the most. I'm telling you now. It's those you would think don't have anything that seem to come up with something that's just mind-blowing. I had the, the great privilege today of someone calling me up and saying, Brian, people I know, I love, minister to, they're part of this church, but they, they're not people of means whatsoever. They barely make it from week to week. And as a church, we've ministered to their needs many times. And out of the abundance of their poverty, they gave to this church beyond their means. So much so that I had to say, are you sure? Are you sure you can give this? And they say, it's, it's our blessing. This church has been so good to us, so kind to us. God has been so good to us. And they gave. And I'm looking at this, and I'm like, this shouldn't be. But again, with God, all things are possible. And that's a blessing. That's God's grace on their life. So anyway, I use that as an example because Paul's going to use an example here. And we'll speak about that later. Like I said, I want to share my heart. I don't want you to miss this. The heart of a joyful giving church is the motivation of why we give. It's the root. It's the most important thing. So as I spoke about it last week, I'm going to speak about it a little bit today about this whole tithing thing that's been so misrepresented by so many misinformed New Testament preachers. Some are well-intending, good intentions, and, and, and they demand the tithe, they command the tithe, they go through all sorts of clever interpretations of the Old Testament to try to apply it to the New Testament believer. Please let me tell you now, you can take no Old Testament verse of Scripture and apply it to a New Testament believer as though he was a Jew living under the law. You cannot do it. It's insulting to Christ. It's insulting to the work of the Holy Spirit on our hearts. You cannot command people to give a tithe. As I said, if the Bible commanded us to tithe, I'd have no problem commanding. The Bible says he commands and forbids sexual immorality. I have no problem proclaiming it and teaching why we don't do it. And the power not to do it is, is, is through our relationship with Jesus. But at the same time, tithing is not a New Testament commandment. But yet, that doesn't mean we're off the hook. We're to give generously from our heart. But the pastor and the minister cannot command anyone to give 10% of their money. 
Now, let me explain something we're going to read here in two, two chapters. I'm going to ask Lewis to get up in a, little, a moment and read out of the Message Bible because it eloquently touches upon it. The Apostle Paul was a theological giant. He single-handedly, out of all the writers of the New Testament, he put the law in its biblical perspective. It's Paul who taught us, and only Paul, no other apostle comes close to teaching it, that Jesus Christ is the end and the fulfillment of the law and righteousness for all those who believe. It was Paul and Paul alone who put Old Testament law in its proper context. It was anticipatory until the Christ would come and the age of grace would fill our hearts and now we would spontaneously obey God and all the commandments from the heart. There's no threat at all. And if anybody was going to teach tithing as a New Testament commandment, it would be who? It would be Paul. And no one had a greater opportunity in all the New Testament to teach it than Paul. And for two chapters, he taught on giving generously. And guess what? He never mentioned tithing. He never mentioned the Old Testament, and he never mentioned Moses. He quotes a couple of verses of Scripture, and there's a reason, and we'll get into it as I preach. But it's important to understand this, because these two, test, these two chapters we're going to read tonight, is a masterpiece of encouraging generosity. It's painted by the Apostle Paul with painstaking agony. He chose his words carefully and he chose his words perfectly. When I read this, it's like just watching one of those end zone touchdown passes where guys flying through the air, and he catches a touchdown with one hand. It's like, it's, it's elegant, it's gracious, it's like a double play being executed by two professional ball players. It's, it's seamless. It's like watching, like, for the older ones, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire just dance across the stage, like, like they're on the air. Like, it, it's gracious, they're just moving. It's like, how can people move and dance so well? When you read these two chapters you will see Paul at his brightest, at his apostolic best, to make sure he encourages giving without trampling on the New Testament principle of grace. Listen to the words. Listen to the words, the Message Bible, how it says it. I'm gonna have, it's Lewis to come up. He's going to read all chapter 8 and 9. I want you to sit back with this thought in mind. Listen to how Paul encourages giving. And he reaches down into the heart of the believer and reminds him, this is what Christ has done for you. Lewis. Now, friends, I want to report on the surprising and generous ways in which God is working in the churches at Macedonia province. Fierce troubles came down on the people of those churches, pushing them to the very limit. The trial exposed their true colors. They were incredibly happy, though desperately poor. The pressure triggered something totally unexpected, an outpouring of pure and generous gifts. I was there and saw it for myself. They gave offerings of whatever they could, far more than they could afford. 
pleading for the privilege of helping out in the relief of the poor Christians. This was totally spontaneous, entirely their own idea, and caught us completely off guard. What explains it was that they had first given themselves unreservedly to God and to us. The other giving simply flowed out of the purposes of God working in their lives. That's what prompted us to ask Titus to bring the relief offering to your attention, so that what was so well begun could be finished up. You do so well in so many things. You trust God, you're articulate, you're insightful, you're passionate, you love us. Now do your best in this too. I'm not trying to order you around against your will, but by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. You are familiar with the generosity of our Master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor, and we became rich. So here's what I think. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year and not let those good intentions grow stale. Your heart's been in the right place all along. You've got what it takes to finish it up, so go to it. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can. The heart regulates the hands. This isn't so others can take it easy while you sweat it out. No, you're shoulder to shoulder with them all the way. Your surplus matching their deficit. Their surplus matching your deficit. In the end, you come out even, as it is written. Nothing left over to the one with the most. Nothing lacking to the one with the least. I thank God for giving Titus the same devoted concern for you that I have. He was most considerate of how we felt, but his eagerness to go to you and help out with this relief offering is his own idea. We're sending a companion along with him, someone very popular in the churches for his preaching of the message. But there's far more to him than popularity. He's rock-solid trustworthy. The churches hand-picked him to go with us as we travel about doing this work of sharing God's gifts to honor God as well as we can, taking every precaution against scandal. We don't want anyone suspecting us of taking one penny of this money for ourselves. We're being as careful in our reputation with the public as in our reputation with God. That's why we're sending another trusted friend along. He's proved his dependability, dependability many times over and carries on as energetically as the day he started. He's heard much about you and liked what he's heard, so much so that he can't wait to get there. I don't need to say anything further about Titus. We've been close associates in this work of serving you for a long time. The brothers who travel with him are delegates from churches, a real credit to Christ. Show them what you're made of, the love I've been talking up in the churches. Let them see it for themselves. If I wrote any more on this relief offering for the poor Christians, I'd be repeating myself. I know you're on board and ready to go. I've been bragging about all through Macedonia province, telling them Achaia province has been ready to go on this since last year. Your enthusiasm by now has spread to most of them. Now I'm sending the brothers to make sure you're ready, as I said you would be, so my bragging won't turn out to be just so much hot air. If some Macedonians and I happened to drop in on you and found you weren't prepared, we'd all be pretty red-faced, you and us, for acting so sure of ourselves. So to make sure there will be no slip-up, I've recruited these brothers as an advance team to get you and your promised offering all ready before I get there. 
I want you to have all the time you need to make this offering in your own way. I don't want anything forced or hurried at the last minute. Remember, a stingy planner gets stingy crop. A lavish planner gets a lavish crop. I want each of you to take the plenty, take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. God can pour out blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything, more than just ready to do what needs to be done. As one psalmist puts it, he throws caution to the winds, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can then give away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. Carrying out the social relief involves far more than helping the bare needs of poor Christians. It also produces abundant and bountiful thanksgivings to God. This relief offering is a prod to live at your very best, Showing your gratitude to God by being openly obedient to the plain meaning of the message of Christ. You show your gratitude through your generous offerings to your needy brothers and sisters, and really toward everyone. Meanwhile, moved by the, moved by the extravagance of God in your lives, they'll respond by praying for you in passionate intercession for whatever you need. Thank God for this gift, His gift. No language can praise it enough. Amen. Prayerfully, you understood that we, unfortunately, technicalities didn't allow us to put it up on the screen. But if you can follow the flow of Paul's heart there, it's, 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 it really is majestic what he has just done and what he just said. Meeting such a real need. Uh, it, it, it's just really incredible. If anyone had the right, the apostolic right, to be demanding for such a great project as relief, and I'm going to speak about the relief of the saints, and to get people to give, it would have been Paul. He had the right to demand it and command it. But yet he chose not to. He chose more to, to appeal to the good, gracious, common sense of what Christ has done for them. As we go forward and speaking on generosity and the Christian's place and being generous to the local church and our giving consistently throughout the week and, and helping other uh, throughout the, the year and, and, and help others uh, within your own reach. It's this motivation that motivates us. We want you to learn this wonderful, gracious gift, this spontaneous, joyful self-discovery of what it means. It's better to give than it is to receive. Amen? Amen. With that, I'm going to read, I'm going to draw some principles and speak about them tonight. I'm going to actually read out, out of the New Living Translation. I'm going to start in chapter 8, verse 7. If we have that, New Tribune. Yes, please. Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, 
and your gifted speakers, your knowledge, you're speaking to a church now. This church is extremely blessed. Since you excel in so many spiritual ways in your faith, in your gifted speakers, in your knowledge, in your understanding of the scriptures, in your enthusiasm, in your love for us, he says this, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. Just like he encouraged them in 1 Corinthians on how to use the gifts of the Spirit properly, how to speak properly, how blessed they were with all these spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms, how to articulate the Christian message, had words of wisdom, words of knowledge, prophecy, healing. He, and he says, you're blessed in all these areas, but he reminds them now, not just that. He goes, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. What we have to realize, though Christians and their churches can exemplify so many different gifts, it doesn't cover for the gift of generosity. Generosity is its own gift. Generosity still needs to be encouraged and expected, and that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, Corinthians, you guys are so blessed. You've given so much to so many in spiritual ways, but not just that. Excel when it comes to actually meeting the materialistic needs of others. Excel in this, just like you excel in every other spiritual gift, in your faith, in your knowledge, in your understanding, in your preaching, in your teaching, in your words of wisdom and words of knowledge, in your healing. That's all wonderful. That's all great. Continue to do that. But while you're at it, excel in generosity. We have to make sure that the sinful, rational mind or the rationally sinful mind doesn't think that because we do a lot of other things with the gifts God has given us, that we don't have to excel in generosity. We've got to make sure that we don't allow the gifts God has given us to stop us from being generous. Generosity should walk hand in hand with every other spiritual gift a Christian has and every other spiritual gift the church has should walk hand in hand. One doesn't outdo the other or one doesn't outrun the other. They go hand in hand. But again, we go back to the way Paul expresses it. He says that you can hear him like, like a father. I want you to excel. I want you to own it. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to know the, the deep, joyful expression when you give from your heart to the Lord for the needs of others. He goes on in verse 8. If anybody commanded, it was Paul. But he says, no, I'm not commanding you to do this. A lot of preachers would take warning from that verse of scripture. A lot. But he goes, I am testing the genuineness of your love by comparing with the eagerness of other churches. You see, he, he's encouraging giving. And he's also, it's just as important that he modeled giving. As I shared earlier about someone who really, a couple that don't have anything, but yet they gave so much. That's a model. Pastors need to model. Leaders need to model. Parents need to model. Giving is a model thing. And we share it. And we, and we show it. And we demonstrate it. And we exemplify it. It's manifested in our life. The Christian is someone who's, who's just generally and genuinely generous at all times. At all times. 
It's not a light switch dependent on how big the salary was or the bonus was or the inheritance was. It has nothing to do with it. If I got a dime, I give a penny. I got a dollar, I'll give you a dime. I got ten dollars, I'll give you a dollar or two. I got a hundred, I'll give you ten. I got a thousand, I'll give you a hundred. I got ten thousand, I'll give you a thousand. I got a hundred thousand, I'll give you ten thousand. I got a million, I'll give you a hundred thousand. It's a principle. It's simple. I give it. Because God has given it to me. It makes no difference. But it has to be modeled. And it needs to be encouraged. You can see him. Listen to him. How he's choosing his words. I'm not commanding you to do this. Because that would go against the sacrifice of Christ. Who paid the price. He's our tithe. Did you know that? Jesus Christ is your tithe. You can never outgive what God has given to us at the cross. Never. But he says, but I do test you in the genuineness of your love. You know, this is an opportunity to give. God watches over. Giving and meeting the needs of others is dear to the heart of God. It is the foundation, it is the heartbeat of New Testament religion. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He who was rich became poor that we would become rich. 1 John 3.17 says it this way. If someone has enough money to live well and sees his brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? How do we turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the needs of others? I'm not commanding you. How beautiful, how eloquent this is. How careful he is not to trample on the spontaneous nature of what the Holy Spirit is doing in the heart of the Christian. And he uses verse 9 here. It's the root of New Testament giving. He says this. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He could have easily said, you know what Moses said? He doesn't doesn't come close to it. He just says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty he can make you rich. And there's a reason why Paul doesn't lean on Moses. Paul doesn't lean on the law. Paul doesn't lean on a command. Because something greater than Moses has come. Something greater than the law has come. Something greater than the command has come. Jesus' self-willing sacrifice on our behalf has finally come. It puts an end to law. Something greater than Moses. Something greater than the demand. Something greater than the command. If Jesus Jesus Christ's sacrifice on your behalf and my behalf doesn't move me to generosity, nothing ever will. Nothing. At all. And if something does move me to give, I have to question my giving. I'll speak a little bit about that later. This is the root of giving. That verse of scripture. Genuine generosity is motivated by Christ and the fulfillment of the law. He goes on to say in 10 and 11, listen to the way he says it. Verse 9, he says, I'm not commanding you. And here he says, here's my advice. 
This is my apostolic advice. This is a man whose mind is filled with the Old Testament theology. This is a man who, mind, who's, who's seen the risen Christ. This is a man who, who persecuted and killed Christians. And this is when he says, this is my advice, listen. We should listen. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's as good as a command. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year you were first who wanted to give. And you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. See, Paul reminds them of the previous good intentions. And that's right. And that's proper. Because Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Proverbs says, don't make any rash vow. Don't get caught up in the moment without reflecting on something. Say, oh, I'll, I'll do it. I'm in. You know, the song moved me, the 15 songs in a row moved me to, to give. A stirring sermon moves me to give. No reflecting, no consideration, no bringing it to prayer, no time to think about it. Just a rash decision. This is a year later, and Paul's saying, listen, you've had plenty of time to think about this now. Just give to what you have, that's all. Don't give out a rash vow. Don't give out of pretense. I'm just reminding you that there was a time when I bring the need to you, you were more than willing to give. Now is the time to do it. He goes on to verse 11 and 12. And it, it answers so much on how much to give. Listen to Paul. Here, here's Paul. If he was going to preach on tithing, this was the time. But he says, give in proportion to what you have. This is beautiful. This is elegant. This is making sure he doesn't trample on the relationship between Jesus Christ, the Savior, the law keeper, and the sinner saved by grace. He's like, this is between you and the Lord. I'm not getting away with this. This is delicate. This is a surgeon. He's doing a delicate heart surgery. He's watching over everything. Everything is precise with precision Every word is calculating. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly from the right heart. And give according to what you have, not according to what you don't. Don't try to be somebody you're not. Don't try to keep up with those who can give more. Just give what you know in your heart. You can give and give it to the Lord and, and be joyful. Yeah. I shared this last week. I'll speak a little bit more. Churches, unfortunately, people fall into this category, this, this class warfare of those who do and those who don't. There's the tithers and then there's the non-tithers. There's the, those who can give and, and those who can't give. And that should never, ever, ever enter into the Christian life. Ever. If anybody had the right to do it, it was Paul. And listen to the way he stays away from it. Leave it to the born again conscience. Who knows that Christ died for them. Leave it to them. They know what they make. They know what's in their pocket. Look around picking the pockets of the sheep. Christians know. But in proportion, this is important. Because in proportion means get the Christian to look at what God has given them 
to be good stewards of everything you've given me, God. And to say, this is a portion to you, God. Taking out a portion, not a predetermined how much I'm going to give. No, it's something every week you look at and say, this is God's. It's a portion to God. It's between you and the Lord. And to come and joyfully give a portion. Don't miss that. In the Old Testament, when someone, a sinner would come to the temple to bring, they could bring a dove if that's all they could afford. Or they could bring the whole ox or goat if that could they afford. Or if they can only afford a pigeon, but they bring a little more, it was a free will offering, that's fine with the Lord too. In proportion. It takes a look at everything we have. And there's nothing sweeter to say, God... I know what you gave me this week. I know what you gave me in my life. I know my net worth. And God, this is for you. In proportion to what you've given me. It's between the Christian and his God. Not between the Christian and the elders or the trustees. It's between a Christian and their God, period. Leave the conscience alone. Let God speak to his children's hearts. It's a spiritually healthy way to look at finances. It also keeps us from some kind of predetermined, preconceived, calculating, well, I'll just give this. And, and over the years, my salary has increased as God has blessed me, but guess what hasn't increased? My giving. So I, what it says, the proportion stops me to take a look and say, look at this. Look at this abundance that's coming in. I can give more to God. Praise God. And we're going to find out later on that sometimes it's not there. Sometimes you have no money. You can't afford to do it. Guess what? You don't have to give anything. You give in proportion to what you have. Paul says, not what you don't have. Sometimes you really can go the extra mile. Sometimes you can't. But the Christians should know this. He says, not what you don't have. The horror. As I prepared for this, and I've thought and I've reflected long and hard over my knowledge of what takes place. I've seen pastors ask for credit cards. Go to the ATM. Take out mortgages. Give inheritances. Take out loans. You would think, no way. It is more prevalent then I really want to admit this is entrepreneurial religion at its worst. It is not about the kingdom of God at all. There's not a verse of scripture in the New Testament that you can stand to do that. Even in the Old, Ten- Old Testament, when, when God's people gave to the tabernacle, understand something, it says, as God moved on their hearts. You know how much... Given is out of pretense and pretext. You know how much given is to get into the in crowd? I mean, people get pews because they gave enough money to get your name on a pew. People gave this, and, 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 and there's a, a headstone in your name, and then there's this in your name, and then, you know, we'll promise to do this for you, and you're advertised because you're given enough money. It should never be in the Christian church. The left hand should never know what the right hand is doing. It's between us and God. And listen to this. 
This is, remember why this is all for. All this given is for the greatest need that ever came upon the Christian church. The relief of the saints in Jerusalem. This wasn't about some kind of, let's win the world for Jesus. This appeal to the born again conscience to give according to what they have, not out of what they don't have, not as a command, but as an appeal of grace, was the relief of the saints in Jerusalem who most likely were starving to death out of persecution. It could have been famine, but most scholars think it was persecution. To be saved and come to follow Christ as a Jew in Jerusalem at this time in the first century was to enter into sure poverty and a slow death. That's need. Paul doesn't command. He doesn't demand. But yet, is there a higher cause? Given is about other people. It's to relieve suffering. Not to pad the budget. All finances should go to relieve suffering. Yeah, there's bills that got to be paid. There's food bills that need to be met. But at the end of the day, it is for the relief of the saint. Are you ready? Can you hear more? They never met these people in their life, but they didn't. Ever. They would never meet them. They're almost 1,500 miles away, separated by an ocean, and mountain after mountain after mountain. You could not get more diversified between the Jew and the Gentile, but here it is. The Jews, Paul knew, were going to hear about this great wave of financial blessing coming, and it's not coming from the synagogue. It's not coming from the temple. It's not coming from the Pharisees. It's coming from the Gentiles who the Jews want nothing to do with, to the glory of God. To the glory of God. And when someone gives, when the pastoral team blesses someone in the church, it's not from the pet church, it's from God's people who are blessing God's people. Just stewards of the money. Stewards of the money. It just, I want you to know, not too many things get me angry. <coughs> Except Christ-denying theology and manipulation of grace drives me crazy. Gets me angry. How dare you step on the integrity of Christ's sacrifice? How dare you step on the power and integrity of the Holy Spirit to speak to the Christian? How dare you? How dare you tell a Christian who Christ suffered for, who gladly and generously gave him the Holy Spirit, the new covenant into their heart, to move them to good works? How dare you manipulate that heart? How dare you manipulate that sheep? How dare you get in the way of the good shepherd's work on their heart? How dare you? But yet people just say it as they have some entitlement to command people to give more than they have. Yeah. It angers me. It gets better. Chapter 9, verses 16 to 25. Yes, please. <laughs> if you have it, if not, I'll go to the ESV. Whatever, what translation you have, I'll work with you. 
If you have chapter 9, 16 to 25, great. Yeah. All right, I'm going to read you that. Are we sure? Okay. Well, I think somebody was right. Here's chapter 8. I'll blame Jackie on that. Okay, my fault. Listen to financial integrity. You ready? Listen to financial integrity. Listen to how Paul says it. Thank, but thank God he has given us Titus the same enthusiasm for you that I have. Titus, welcome our request that he visit you again. In fact, he himself was very eager to do it. And you see... We are also sending another brother with Titus. All the churches praise him as a preacher of the good news. He was appointed by the churches to accompany us and take the offering to Jerusalem, a service that glorifies the Lord and shows our eagerness to help. We are traveling together to guard against any criticism for the way we're handling this generous gift. We are careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone else to see that we are honorable. I don't want you to miss this. This is not Paul and a couple of his Jewish cronies saying, don't worry about it. This is Paul taking a Gentile and another Gentile and, and coming from the churches. All the churches are represented over here as, as a board of trustees should be. And they're coming together. And just to make sure we do everything honorable before God and man, we have financial transparency. We don't want anyone to associate us with thievery or scandal. Pastors don't speak like that. Many ministries don't even know what goes on financially. There's no business meetings. There's no integrity. It's pushed to the side. It's pushed under the rug. As though it's not your money. Look at me. It's your money between you and God. And the greatest painstaking, uh, I should say, needs to be implemented to keep financial integrity at all times, not just before God, anybody can say that, but before men who can verify. Trust and verify. That's what it's about. And in chapter 9, 12 to 15, we'll be closing with this. Any translation you want. Chapter 9, 12 to 15. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of the believers in Jerusalem will be met. And they will joyfully express their thanks to God. As a result of your ministry, they will give glory to God. For your generosity to them and to all believers will prove that you are obedient to the good news of Christ. And they will pray for you with deep affection because of the overflowing grace God has given you financially. Thank God for this gift too. Wonderful for his works. 
You see, the purpose of everything is for the glory of God. Everything we do is for the glory of God. Every nickel we give, every dollar we give, every thousand we give, every ten thousand we give, whatever we give is to the glory of God and the relief of somebody else. Now remember, here's the Jew is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the Gentile they called dogs. We're now being fed by those who heard the good news. It's a confirmation that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of all. Of all. all. This was proof to the Jewish believer of how powerful the Christian message is. Understand something as I close it. Coercing, arm twisting, manipulating, threatening God's people to give as though it is your, you have to do this or God won't bless the rest of your finances. I want you to please hear, hear my heart. If you ever hear any kind of manipulating teaching like that, realize it might be good intentions, Mm -hmm. but it's not based theologically in the cross of Christ. At all. Five times in the New Testament, Paul gives an appeal to give. And he never leans once on Old Testament law. But always on the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share my heart to your people, Father God. To free them from any pretense and pretext of giving. That you liberate them, Father God. That whatever they give, they give out of what they have always and not what they don't have. And they can give joyfully a portion of what you've given to them, Father God. And in this you are glorified, Father God. And other saints rejoice, Father God. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this church that gives from the heart. I thank you for the financial security of this church, Father God. I thank you for the financial integrity of this church, Father God. I thank you for the financial faithfulness you've been to this church. I thank you that we've met the needs and we continue to meet the needs of suffering saints, not just in this congregation, not just in this neighborhood, but yes, even around the world, Father God. I thank you, God, that somehow, someway, Father God, there are churches and believers on the other side of the world that are praying for us, Father God, as we meet the needs of others, Lord. God, continue to open up doors so that we can sow the gracious seed into their life, Father God. And let everybody know when they give that they're given to the glory of God. I bless you, God. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for your ministry on the hearts of those Jesus died for. Off limits. Lord God, Your people's pockets are off limits to us. They belong to you along with their hearts. In Jesus' name.